how can we use Y in a way that works for us? And we literally will say to people, there are a lot of competitors out here that could teach you. You know, Harvard could teach you negotiation. You can learn negotiation from Wharton. Karras is out there. There are no shortage of credible competitors for negotiation knowledge. Why would you ever come to the Black Swan Group? We ask that question all the time. Before the book came out, we'd be standing up in front of a group and I'd say, guys, why listen to a hostage negotiator? And what happens? What do you think happens? Why would you listen to a hostage negotiator? Why would you? Because your skills have to work. Your skills have to work is what he said. Here's what happens on the people that haven't made up their mind yet. They tell you which part of your value proposition appeals to them. I could say, you should listen to a hostage negotiator because my skills have to work. Or I can look at you and say, why would you do this? And you say the same thing. Now, when does it matter more to you? when you say it. And I begin to understand what aspect. Now, if, if I, he's a potential client, I say, why would you ever listen to a hostage negotiator? And he says to me, because your skills have to work. Now I use that to continually frame my value proposition because I know that's an element in my value proposition and those are the words that speak to him. And if their mind is 80% made up ahead of time, you have to diagnose what aspects of what you bring to the table matter to them. Because more than likely, every single one of you have anywhere from 10 to 20 reasons why people should do business with you. And if you start out on stuff that doesn't matter to me, how long before I tune you out? Five seconds is a pretty accurate guess. It's roughly three to 10 seconds. Some data says seven seconds. But you're going to blow five, seven, ten seconds on the wrong issue, and I'm going to tune you out. I mean, and there's no shortage. I don't know how many of you have been in pitch presentations and have pitch presentations or have, have product presentations. People hate having a CEO in a room because they're like, damn, CEO's going to interrupt, start asking questions before I can get all the way through my presentation. Well, actually, what does that tell you? It tells you, number one, that he didn't care about everything you said up to that point in time, and what he interrupted John was what he really cared about. Right? But, and we see this in industry after industry after industry. I worked hard on that presentation. I want them to sit there for two hours while I give the whole thing. That, that's when people are really happy, when they get a chance to get through their whole proposal. And then, and ideally, they don't get any hard questions and they roll out of there happy as hell, right? And then what happens? No sale, no sale right? Hearing yes is a bad thing to hear. So don't say yes. Yeah, yes in and of itself. I, I would much rather say, you know, okay, I'll do it. I'd, I'd lo I love to say you win because when you win, you're going to perform. Hmm. Yes is nothing without how. I need you to perform at a top level. You perform at a higher level when you feel like you win. If I if I hear if you look at me and we make a deal and you say okay, well that's a resigned okay, and we're going to run into trouble when we go to implement because the, the minute anything mm. bad could happen by you by your inaction, you know there's a phrase never be mean to someone who could hurt you by doing nothing, mm. which nearly everybody can hurt you by doing nothing. Right. Um, so saying okay, I'll do it. Right. Or yes, you win. Or you win. Right, right. I, yes. I, I want you to feel like you won. You win. So you got the better end of the deal. Yeah, because are are you are you going to hold to the deal if you got the best end of the deal? Right, of course, you love it. you can brag yeah. about. Awesome. It. Yeah, I got the better end. Huh. Right. So you win. Okay, I'll do it. You win. You can do both of them together. Um, if I say it, that's good because you won. If you say it, it's bad to me because you feel beat. Mm. I don't want you to. I don't want you to feel beaten. Right, right, right. Which is one of the real big problems with negotiation because since since I've been getting helping people get better at it, 
like uh, I get more stories. A guy says, let me tell you about this deal. I had them over a barrel. There was nowhere for them to go. You know, for all intents and purposes, I took them hostage. Well, I, I guarantee you that the person they beat um, was as passive aggressive as possible on the implementation of that deal. Mm, they didn't feel they good about it. Money on the table. They didn't feel good about it. Right. Huh. Right. So always make the other person feel like they got the better end of the deal. Right. Right. They won. And yeah, they won. And it was their idea. It was their idea. I like your idea. I'll do it. Something like that. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean that that that's really good, and so that's why the one usually the one word answers of yes and no, those are also frequently misunderstood. Mm. You know, there's three kinds of yeses: there's commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. Huh. And most people are used to getting lured into a trap with yes. You know, would you like to make more money? Isn't it true this is the off season? You know, whatever setup <laughs> yes there is. Would you like? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know what's leading someplace. Yes. One of my uh, one of my students is on a honeymoon, and he's wanting to get um, uh, an upgrade on his bungalow. And it's the off season in this in this resort. Now, what they typically do is they cut prices on on their basic rooms, but, but they not don't the honeymoon cut, suites. But not the honeymoon right. suites. And he, but he knows they're all vacant. Now, what he he doesn't want to cut price on a regular room. He wants a honeymoon suite, and he starts out the conversation with like, you know, isn't it true this is the off season? And the general manager knows there's a trap there. So what's you know, he say? And, and so the guy starts going sideways on him immediately. Oh, really? He didn't say yes. Right. He didn't want to say yes because he knows that yes is commitment and yes is probably a trap. And he he knows I don't know where you're going with this, but you're going someplace. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened? Well, then, and so then uh, my student realized that you know he fell into this this yes trap thing. Mm. So he had to kind of he had to kind of get back out of it. And they started talking, and instead of trying to get yeses and nos out of him, he started describing the situation. It started showing him a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm sure you know a lot of guys on like me come in. We want a room. We don't want to pay anything for it. You get so many tourists that are in here in the off season, and they're cheap. That's why they're here in the off season anyway, because they're cheap to start with, and they don't right. want to pay anything for for anything anyway. And now the the managers appreciate where the guy's coming from. Uh, so he ends so up leading getting, with the negative, right? He ends up, he ends up getting the upgrade. Really? Yeah. Free because he built a relationship and yeah, the guy the guy the guy's got an empty room. Yeah. Never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing. Not giving you the the empty room is doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, you want this guy to give you a favor. And he doesn't own the hotel, and those rooms are normally vacant anyway. So his owner, whoever owns the hotel, they're not mad at him because those rooms are empty. They expected them to be empty. Yeah. So he's got options. You know, ultimately, you want to make the pitch like, you know, you give me that upgrade, I'm going to be a fan for life. I'm going to tell everybody how well I was treated. I'm going to tell all my friends about this. Something I've done for like the last 10 years, a friend of mine told me this line that he's like, you know, if you ever want an upgrade, if you ever want like something better in the deal, use this line. And I swear I've been using it. Maybe it's been wrong, but I'd love your opinion. All right. I say, what's the chance you can help me with this? All right, so that's a that's a what question to start what's with. What's the chance? Two things about that that yeah. I like. Um, first of all, it's a what question. Yeah. And secondly, um, what's the chance you can upgrade me? You're uh, elevating the person when you're asking for help. So you're giving them power, right? Right. The opportunity to have power. Right. Yeah, so there's... And, and I don't know that I'd change that sentence at all. I might say in advance, like, look, this is really going to seem greedy of me. Mm. You know, because so you can't, you can't. Leading with the negative. Leading, leading with the negative. Wow. If you If you try to call out a negative that's not there, you won't plant it. If you try to deny a negative that's not there, you plant that baby. And that's why you have to know the difference between a denial and a straight observation. And those, that's a subtle difference. Because you're, go- you're probably going to want to say, before you ask a guy for a discount, you're probably going to say, this guy's going to think I'm cheap and I'm greedy. I don't want him to think that. Mm-hmm. So if you mention it all, you get instinct to say, look, like, I, don't wanna, I, don't wanna, I, want you, I don't want you to think I'm cheap and greedy here. That's a denial. That plants mm-hmm. it. So uh, I bet you might think that I'm being a little greedy. I'm sure it's, I'm sure I'm sure it's, it's going to seem across. greedy. I'm coming, that I'm, that yeah. I'm being greedy, but what's the chance you can help, you can upgrade me? Yeah. 
Yeah, you can support me in getting upgraded. And, and so if you're not, if asking for an upgrade is a human being, the guy's going, no, that's not gritty. You want them, you want them thinking no. You want them saying no. Mm. No is a great answer because when somebody says no, they def- have just protected and defended themselves. Like it's ridiculous, the most ridiculous question that they would never say yes to. Like if 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 at the end of a negotiation, uh, if I can't if my one of my last things I'm always going to say is like if you can't budge at all, I'll say, all right, well look, uh, it seems like you're powerless here. Oh, because nobody hurts. wants to say yes. To oh, that. <laughs> wow. Seems like there's nothing you can do. Seems like wow. you're completely powerless here. And they'll put you on hold. They'll find a way to help. You. <laughs> so it seems like you're powerless. You can't help me. It sounds like you're powerless here. Right. Nobody ever wants to say yes to that. Wow. Yeah. That is powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you use that a lot when you're at the end of the any phone deal bill or anything or something? You at know? the end of any deal, if we haven't come to an agreement that that I'm happy with, that'll be the last thing I'll say. It seems like there's nothing I could say. And it seems like you're powerless. It seems like nothing that you could say to them to right. get what you need. Right. Or for them to move right. the deal points, and it seems like you're powerless. Right. Like they're powerless. Right. Holy cow. That's, yeah. that's powerful insight. So, yeah, we, we a lot of people have cut deals by they thought it was completely in the tank. and They're actually just trying to end positively. It's really it's critical to end positively. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. If someone is looking to buy, wanting to buy something, acquire right. something, whether they're buying a business, a car, a house, um, some potential expensive item, a jewelry, something of, of more value than $1,000, and they, they might be able to negotiate a lower price. You mentioned the extreme price anchoring how that is a mistake, right? There's a house for a million dollars. I'll give you 200 grand for it, right? right, that's, right. That's, but you want to get a better deal. Right. Maybe it's a Rolex. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a house. Maybe you want to acquire a business, whatever it is. Something right. of higher value. A ring, an engagement ring. You're going to marry someone. Right, right, right. Let them make their profit off somebody else. Yeah. What should be the lower percentage on a, a higher item of value? How? What should the initial offer be you want to get a better deal so you don't want to pay a million dollars for a home but you really want the home you don't want to pay three thousand for the diamond ring the engagement ring but you really want that ring right how low of a percentage should you go to anchor in order for you to feel like oh i got a great deal and i got the thing i wanted and they didn't get screwed over you know what i mean well, depend upon the context. I mean, like thirty thirty percent is a good rule of thumb to start at. Well, for for a target, like if you if you and, and very very context driven. Sure. Like for example, I'm in Macy's one time and um, picking out this jacket. Girl I'm with really likes it. She searches the thing extensively. She finds like a thread out of place, mm. and she goes like, <laughs> "Watch me get ten percent off on this jacket." And I'm like, <laughs> "Thread out of place." I can get 30% by being nice. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, I, like in, in every transaction, you know, I look at it as an ag- there's an aggravation tax. Now, the person that you're dealing with has already built in the aggravation tax because of all the aggravating people that have come through the door ahead of them. So there's an aggravation penalty. There's an annoyance tax. There's an aggravation tax. It's already there on a price. Now, if you're not aggravating... You don't need to pay the aggravation tax. Interesting. Let somebody else pay that aggravation tax. And you so, benefit from them actually paying that, that tax. Yeah, yeah let, some, let somebody else pay it. Um, if I'm not aggravating, why should I pay the aggravating tax? So, <laughs> you know, this young lady, she'd gotten 10% off on a regular basis. I will be demanding 10, 10% is the annoyance tax when there's another 20% to be gained. Mm, interesting. Like you don't. So many people don't realize how much money they're leaving on the table. Really? Like massive amounts of money. On, on any given, the difference between 10% off and 30% off. Right. Like they got a way to give you a better deal mm-hmm. if they feel like it. So how do you get them to feel like it? Well, so yeah, great. There you go. Exactly. 
Again, the approach very similar to the hotel thing. You know, there's there's a there's a strategy where we sort of bundle the skills in a black swan method. We call it the accusations audit. The accusations audit. Accusations audit. Let me do an audit of all the names you would call me <laughs> if I'm going to do this. Uh huh. You say this. You say it to yourself. Okay, not to because I need to come up with a list. Uh-huh. So again, it's like look. You get annoying people coming through here all day long, every day, want something for nothing. I'm going to look like just like another one of these annoying jerks. It's really demanding and rub you the wrong way. And don't appreciate how hard it is for you to work in this jewelry store, this car dealership, this wherever you are. You are knocking yourself out in a tough sales job. Mm-hmm. You're trying to feed your family. People are coming here trying to take food out of your mouth. Because how do they see it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about you. And it's not about, it's really not sympathy. You know, the difference between sympathy and empathy. You know, I feel your pain. Right. Like, I've been there too. You know, like, I'm a regular guy like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, don't give me that regular guy stuff. (laughs) So, but you you look at people like me, you want something for nothing, who come walking in all the time. You know, you look at us as, as wanting discounts and, you know, and you're trying to feed your family. Now, suddenly, this person is like, oh, wow. They get it. This is not the yeah, other yeah. annoying jerk that came in here. Now, now they're starting to open up. And then, you know, you talked before about being playful. Being playful about this can be a really big deal. I, I've gotten so many things for free for being playful or upgrades or discounts just by, let me just say, a friendly joke or just something funny. Right. You know, let me just be goofy and dance in front of them and be like, what is this guy doing, you know? Yeah. You just got, you don't got to pay the aggravation tax. Yeah. And then plus... See, Sean says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Not only have you put the person in a better mood, you now got them thinking about options. Mm. What can they do? What, you know, how can they help you? What can they get away with? How can they shortcut the TSA line? How can they, um, what's the code for the employee discount? Like I, you know, in this, this same place where I'm, where I'm trying to get this 30% or so off, and I'm joking around with this guy. Sure. You know, and, and one of the things you get them to see as a human being, I'm like, well, I'm Chris. Is there a Chris discount? What kind of Chris discount is there? <laughs> and they laugh at that. And so, and, I, and I'm still not getting enough of a discount. And finally, I go like, look, give me the employee discount. Mm, now, I've been joking around. I smile when I say this. This guy goes like, if I give you the employee discount, i got to pay for this thing myself. And I go, I'll pay you back. Yeah, yeah. And I'm laughing and he laughs. And so he looks at the machine and I says, wait right here. And he walks around, and I see him, and I walks up to a person, and I perceive to be the manager. And he's whispering in the manager's ear, and I see this manager standing there going like, no, no. No, really? No. And he comes walking back, and another employee intercepts him, whispers in his ear, and I see his eyes light up, and he walks over, and he plugs in a discount for me, and we get the 30% off. Wow. But I was joking with him. I was showing I knew what it looked like from his perspective. I'm getting myself out of this aggravation tax thing. Mm-hmm. You know, let somebody else pay the demanding, aggressive, mm-hmm. annoying tax. Mm-hmm. You go in there and you brighten somebody else's day up. You leave the world a better place. You get some practice in because mm-hmm. you want that confidence for the big negotiation. Right. And all these things work for you. And you are you end up feeling better about the day yourself. Yes. You get a fun interaction. And yeah. you got a discount. Exactly. How we can negotiate during these uncertain times so that we can survive in order to pick up the pieces economically when this is all over. You're faced with colleagues, clients, vendors, customers trying to completely pull out of deals because they're scared about what's going on. And consequently, you're trying to hang in there and you're scared about what's going on also. I'm going to give you a three-step process in order to maximize your chances for success. The Black Swan Group is always here to give you the best chance of success. And here's the steps to the process that will put you in the best position to not just survive, but to thrive through these times. So we're going to start with what we refer to as tactical empathy. And then we're going to move from that point into an effective pause to let our tactical empathy sink in. And then we're going to be using something that a Black Swan group calls a thought-shaping question. 
So we'll start off with the, what the facts are and how we see it. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be language in this video for mature audiences only. Because we're going to use the language that we're using with each other. I had a client call me up on the phone the other day after they'd sent me a text message that said, this is a total shit show. So that's the way we're going to start this out because this is the way everybody is viewing this situation. A total shit show. Start out by saying, this is a total shit show. I know you are scared to death. You guys are desperate. You're scared this whole thing is going to get out of control. And it's going to destroy you and your company. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what people are feeling on the other side. The best way to drive a stake through the heart of any fear is to just simply call it out. Even call it out, overdo it. If you're not laying it on thick, you're not laying it on thick enough. You've got to drive a stake through the heart of these fears and you do it in a fearless manner. Again, this is how this goes. This is a total shit show. You guys are desperate. You're scared this whole thing is going to get out of control. And it's going to destroy you and your company. Now notice when I said this, I didn't put in, we're scared too. When the other side is scared, they're not worried about whether or not you're scared. They're caught up in their own fears. And we're not going to use we as a disguise when we need to be using the word you. Tactical empathy is a recognition of how the other side is actually feeling and the articulation of it. It's about them and it ain't about you. And this is not the time to be dropping we's in the middle of it when you need to be connecting with them by saying you. Now the next thing you're going to do after this is you're going to go silent. Good use of tactical empathy has got to sink in and you can't be stepping on it with coming up with but, this is how we're going to deal with it, or but, any of this but nonsense. Believe me, as Brandon Voss, the president of the Black Swan Group, likes to say, nobody wants you to put your but in their face. So anytime you're about to use the word but is a perfect time to go dead silent. You need to let your tactical empathy sink in. So go dead silent and if you have to, Start counting one thousands to yourself silently. One one thousand, two one thousand, whatever it takes. You have to stay silent and let them make the next move. Now, they're either going to give you an indicator that they want to hear what you have to say, or they're going to express some more of their own fears, which means you haven't expressed it enough for them, and it's a time to paraphrase what they say, or even expand on how they feel about it. Or if they've gone completely silent on you, that means you're on the right track, you just haven't gone far enough. And if you're on the right track and you haven't gone far enough, when they're silent, the next thing you got to do is say, and I haven't even expressed as bad as it is. Probably feels much worse to you than what I've said. This is a recognition of the dynamic that's taking place in a moment. You've got to clear somebody's fears out before you move on, otherwise... They're going to continue to have all the judgment and everything that they say clouded with fear. You're also not explaining the situation to them. Ronald Reagan said a long time ago, if you're explaining, you're losing. And believe me, if you're trying to explain something to someone, you are losing. Now, deference, of course, is the key to all this. And the late night FM DJ voice. We're not using an urging voice. We're not using an exciting voice. It's a late night FM DJ voice of understanding and confidence. Now we move into the third and final phase. We're going to shape their thinking with a great how question. Now, as you know, our how questions are what we refer to as calibrated questions. And we ask questions not to get answers, but to shape thoughts. So this is a how question designed to be a thought shaping question. How do we work our way through this? so that we don't destroy each other, and we put ourselves in a position to pick up the pieces and work together when this is over. Now what we've done here is we've opened up with a how question in a deferential way to trigger what Daniel Kahneman would call slow thinking. This is slow in-depth thinking, stop you in your tracks thinking, and it also makes the other side feel safe and secure. It's deferential. People love to be asked how. They don't realize that you've helped them make a complete mental shift here because they feel safe and in control by the how question. And then we've added in the visions of the inevitable future. The inevitable future is we're going to have to pick up the pieces after this is over. This is part of the Black Swan Method, and this is from a great article by Brandon Voss. The three negotiation mistakes that are hurting your deals are number one, listening to respond versus listening to understand. Number two, 
Using I understand. And number three, asking yes-oriented questions. Now let's dive in. Number one, listening to respond versus listening to understand. This is the big problem and where really all of your problems stem from. Most people don't listen at all. And if they do listen, they listen to just go, aha, or to contradict, or to jump back in, or to tell somebody why they're wrong. I'm sorry, this is self-centered stuff. To quote Gerard Nuremberg, a negotiation guy that I studied way back when, when I first started this journey, he said, listening is as much about sensing emotions as it is about hearing words. If you're listening to understand, you're sensing emotions. You're trying to figure out where they're coming from. You're taking a focus off you, and you're really putting your focus on them and their perspective and their facts and how they feel about their facts. What has affected them and what kind of reactions has that perception of those effects had on them? That's listening to understand. Now, number two, using I understand. Now, you might say this being very well-intentioned. You might say this because you're trying to express to the other person that you do understand. And this is a misinterpretation of the Covey advice from way back when, seek first to understand, then be understood. And a lot of people, in a very well-intentioned way, will say, I understand, as if it's going to make the other side feel better. Now, your intention is good, but your application is going to fall short. Never in the history of mankind has somebody said to another person, I understand, and stopped there, and had the other person say, oh, thank God, and instantly feel better. Your goal of trying to make them feel understood is the goal. Not that you understand, but that you make them feel understood. And unfortunately, saying, I understand, doesn't make anybody feel understood. As Brandon Voss has always said, if we could reach in your brain and take out the phrase, I understand, entirely, you'd probably be better off. The other problem with the application of this is, the most of the time that people have heard this, somebody has said, I understand, but, and then told them why they were wrong. Well, this doesn't make anybody feel good. But is an erasing word. But erases the intention and the words of everything that came before it. So even if you meant to make them feel good, as soon as you said, but, you wiped it out. Now, the second problem with I understand is a lot of people think, okay, so if I do understand, that means that I can tailor my message and it'll really hit home. So in a very well-intentioned fashion, you take as much time as you can beforehand to try to understand. You research them, you reach their situ research their situation. You research everything you can about them. And then you think you do understand, and therefore you can talk and they can listen, and your talk is going to be that much more effective because you understood. Now the goal is to make them feel understood, and the only way you can make them feel understood is to articulate, to express their perspective back to them and look for the words, that's right. That's right is what people say when they feel understood. And that's what you're going for. You're not going for your right, which is when you're pitching and they're just asking you to stop talking. You're going for that's right. Finally, number three, asking yes-oriented questions. No, no, no. Now, I know you're probably doing this, and I know you're achieving some success with it. That's the problem. People achieve some success with this. We live in a Las Vegas world. The black swan group and the black swan method is to get you off of the gambling table where you win 10% of the time, which is probably what you do with yes-oriented questions, and move you onto the gambling table where you win 80% of the time. It's about increasing your percentages. 
There are those of you that are out there that say, I make deals or I come to agreement with yes-oriented questions. That's my data. Yes, you do. And you are not making as many deals as you could make. You could be asking yes-oriented questions of very respectful intention. You're just trying to respectfully confirm that something is true. And from a very early age, you were taught that when you heard the word no, there were problems. Because it's usually the first word that every kid learns. No. Why? Because every adult is pointing at them when they do something that they didn't mean to do but was wrong. And the adult points at them and says, no. I mean, everybody's got stories about that was the first word their child heard. I don't understand why my kid says no all the time. Well, because you were pointing at him and saying no. So the experience of hearing no has been drilled into our head since we were toddlers that no meant bad. Well, if no is bad, yes must be good. Actually, that's the problem because empathy is about the other side, how the other side feels. So while we were horrified when that adult pointed at us and said no, actually the adult felt good. The adult felt like they were giving direction and it made him feel safe and protected. And this is one of the critical issues of why no is a great response. So um, ghosting is a problem, but I think one of the worst problems, especially whether it's sales or deal making, which is what I'm in, um, stay in touch, right? The prospect, the other party, they want you to stay in touch. You don't stay in touch enough, you become forgotten. If you stay in touch too closely, you are annoying. Any suggestions on tact? tactfully or tactically staying in touch and making sure you're moving the needle with them? Yeah, so um, their, their last words to you is stay in touch. What's the prompt here? Yeah, usually it's this question I get asked a lot. So it's usually we're in long sales cycles, pretty complex deals. Um, they, they tend to like you or whatever, but they're they're not ready to move forward with the negotiation, the deal, the contract or whatever. Stay in touch. They're not saying no, which I'd rather they ghost or say no because then we can move on, but stay in touch. So what would be, you know, a couple of ideas you might think of of how to stay in touch? You know, that, that's that. No, 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 no. Let, let's rethink this. First of all, that's, a, that's the same as a maybe. And you got to treat maybes as if they're no's. So that's, that's mm -hmm. where you got to proceed. After saying stay in touch, it's either flat no, they're not going to do it, or they has they have misgivings that you're not revealing. Mm -hmm. So you and you know that to be true. Like, are you keeping your are you keeping your percentages, your win rate percentage, your length of time to an outcome, and your percentage of successes on your stay in touches? A percentage of stay in touches to success, yes. We we call it more of a pull through yield, meaning. Deals we put in the pipeline to success ratio, it's really high. It's about 85%. But this is more sure the. You answered my question. Hold on. Yeah. Stay in touch as a category only. You can tell me what percentage of the stay in touch people, let's call, mm -hmm. let's call them a zebra or a giraffe okay. or a thoroughbred. I don't care. Mm -hmm. they're, one, they're one profile. Mm -hmm. Stay in touch. Can you tell me what percentage of those close and how long it takes to close? Yes or no? Yes, I could. I could. Yes, I could. Yes. Okay. So can you, uh, so first of all, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Correct. So if they're saying stay in touch, what do you know to be true? That they're not saying no they're somewhat amenable to terms, but whether it's timing or pressure or something on their side that's not motivating them to be enough to turn the dial to let's sign uh, the retainer. All right, so they have misgivings or they lack pressure or they don't see the immediate value. Nobody Correct. says stay in touch on something that they see immediate value to, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise they'd execute. Sure. They, if they see immediate value to it or if they have a um, pressure to execute, they'd execute. Mm -hmm. So Good point. the response is going to be a label. Stay in touch. Sounds like you have misgivings. 
It's a good point. Stay, stay in touch. Sounds like there are other things that are pressuring you. Now, they're going to be much more likely to talk with you about the barriers than they are to talk about what's going to hook them. Mm-hmm. Because people are comfortable talking about what's getting in the way because they don't feel there's a commitment involved. So they're free. I'm free to tell you what the barriers are. It's up to you to solve them. If you want to say, well, what would it take to make this deal? I don't want to say that because it's going to back me into a corner. Mm-hmm. So you want to focus on the barriers instead. And you probably want to go after that with labels. So I, I would I would never, you know, and I, I got to tell you something. Nobody in my business development team goes into stay in touch mode. Uh, and, and a lot of what we've learned will be inspired by similar to um, Jim Camp, Start With No, 2002 book. I work with Jim. We collaborated over a lot of stuff. Me and his sons, Jim has since deceased. Their whole approach was to get somebody make a decision yes mm-hmm. or no but every conversation was designed to make a decision and stay in touch is to avoid decisions mm-hmm. and it's a maybe and it's never never land and you cannot monetize maybe to some degree you can monetize we're not making this deal because then you can move on so mm-hmm. i would i would never go into stay in touch mode i get stay in touch what do you know to be true? You know they don't see the value right now. You know they're being pressured in other areas. You know they have misgivings. You know those things to be true. Mm-hmm. Throw it out with a label, focus in on that. They're going to be much more likely to talk with you. I like the take on that. Very good. I love it. Thank you. You're a rock star, yeah, man, man, but you know. That was a great question. Thank you very much for, uh, for the question. Thank you. Pleasure. Jack Welch author of Jack and Winning, alongside his, with his wife, Susie. They're coming through uh, Los Angeles a couple of years ago. They're, they're, they're hustling their book, The Real Life MBA. I go to the book signing Jack Welch is at. I want him to come speak to the negotiation course I'm teaching at the time at USC. How many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something at that book signing? Pretty much every one of them, right? They're going to come up there, Jack, how are you? My, yeah, my kid makes, my wife makes a great meatloaf. You want to come to the house tonight? God knows what they're going to ask him. Jack, I got this invention. Would you pose with it? How many people are going to ask him to try to say yes? That day, that week, how many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something? You're me. You come up to Jack Welch. What do you say? And how much time do you have? You maybe got seven seconds. And even if you get to the second response after him, there's 300 people standing behind you in line. They walk you up there. Before you get to them, they say, what's your name? Chris, write on a piece of paper so Jack doesn't get it wrong. Really, that's so you don't, so you don't talk to him. And then you keep moving. On top of that, have they patted me down? Do they know whether or not I've got a gun? Have I been through a metal detector? As a matter of fact, I do have a gun, but he's not in trouble for me. They don't have my identification. They don't know I'm not going to hurt him. I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. Action is quicker than reaction. They can't stop me from doing anything I want to do. This is, this is the dilemma of bodyguards. You get within arm's length of the target, you can only stop them after they've done it. You can grab them after they've killed your target, but you can't stop them. I'm, I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. They, I could do whatever I want. I could walk up to him. I could kiss him right on the lips if I want to, right? <laughs> He was falling asleep. I want to make sure he's wake up. <laughs> he's going to wake up screaming in the middle of the night time. <sighs> I walk up to Jack Welch, and this is what I say to him. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? He looks up and to the left, and gives this really intense scowl on his face. And he just freezes. And I think to myself, I just killed Jack Welch. <laughs> he had a stroke. He's so furious. And he's going to die. And the security's going to tackle me. and going to drag me on cuffs. And I'm going to say, but I'm an FBI agent. And we don't care. He killed Jack Welch. So initially, when he doesn't die, I'm relieved. But he still doesn't move. But finally, he unfreezes. And he looks at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. 
This is a special Twitter account we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your class. Calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. The mythology in sales is get to the decision maker. Why is that mythology? The real problem is a deal killer. We were in um, competition uh, via as as uh, through somebody else two or three years ago to to get a contract with Verizon for for their for their negotiation training, and um, uh, the pitch was being made by the company we were working with. We didn't make the pitch. That sounds very self serving to explain why we didn't get the pitch, but through the uh, through the process. The information we got back that was that fully 50% of the deals that Verizon signs are never implemented. Now, I'm at the tip of the iceberg guy. So I'm saying, all right, if this is happening to Verizon, they're an extremely capable company, that's probably a good rule of thumb for all companies. And 50% of the signed deals that's crazy. are not implemented. So what's the problem? The problem is deal killers on the other side. Mm-hmm. The sales rep is getting a deal signed, but there are uh, weasel clauses in it that the other side wanted to have put in so that their deal killers can now kill the deal. You know, the terms and conditions phase that everybody goes through or the weasel clause that's a satisfactory clause. You know, they've gotten you to swallow turn around and kill the deal on you. It's not a sin to take a long time to get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. And this is a massive amount of time invested in not getting the deal because the deal killers on the other side of the table tanked it after everybody thought they had a deal. I, I want to repeat back what you said there. You cut out there just real briefly, and I want to make sure that I'm understanding or that the audience can understand what you're saying when it comes to deal killers versus decision makers. What you're saying is, and I know you talked about this in the book, is that most people in sales, they're like, hey, let's get to the decision maker so that we can get a deal done, right? Whereas you're saying that's not actually the issue. That's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is the deal killer. So for example, the decision maker, I'm going to use a much more simplified than maybe a Verizon example, but tell me if I'm on the right track here. The decision maker may be the the owner of the company, right? However, the deal killer may be the wife or, you know, vice versa, right? And so what you're saying is, is you've got to get the deal killer, the wife on board. And if you can get her on board, then you're good to go. Yeah, just get the deal killer, at least in the loop. A lot lot of the issues are the deal killers are mad that they were never consulted. They were never in a loop. Mm. So they sit back and they're like, all right, you, you know, you didn't pull me into the process. Just try and do this without. Mm. I'll give you another example. We got a, a tra- we're talking about a training contract with a company, and we're talking to the CEO and the head of HR. Now, one would think that the CEO was the decision maker, and if it wasn't, then at least the head of HR was going to be part of it. And they said, "Yeah, you know, I got to tell you what, um, you know, the, the guy that's the head of sales, they are giving away the store. Oh my God, they're." Their salespeople are just, they're getting killed. And, you know, we got to get this training for that guy. And we had a whole training schedule that we worked out and we were talking about scheduling dates. And then lo and behold, they stopped talking to us. Well, who killed the deal? The guy they wanted the training for most of all. Mm. Us bringing in a training process that he was not involved in bringing in sent the message to him that he was a screw up Mm. and he wasn't. And that also it was his fault that his people were given a company, the given a store away. Now he can't admit that, you know, that's an embarrassment. It's not my fault. And I'm sure as heck not going to allow you guys to bring in training that I haven't approved. Right. Right. And he killed the deal on us and, and we never got the deal. And that was, that was the last time we got sucked into that. With sales, especially with things like this, how much of this is logical versus emotional? Uh, I got to tell you something. Uh, everything is emotional. 
I can I can I can lay out the I can lay out the brain science right now and explain explain at length why the neuroscience supports the fact that we do not have a logical thought in our head because we tell ourselves that. But n- the neuroscience tells us uh, unequivocally or unequivocally. I always have trouble with that word, but I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I can't pronounce the words I want to use. But you know what they mean. That's what's important. I, I, I know. I know when I see it. Um, every thought that we have in our head, the neuroscientists are not certain whether thoughts start in the emotional side of, of our brain, uh, which is known as the limbic system, or simply go through the limbic system. But we do not possess a thought that our emotional apparatus, our limbic system, is not intertwined in neuroscience which means we don't have a thought that lacks emotion. We don't make a decision without emotion. And, and actually, interestingly enough, further on, they've shown that if you pull emotions out of our decision-making process, we actually can't make a decision. We can follow directions. If this happens, do that. But we can't make decisions because we can't weigh things out because we weigh things out based on what we care about. So every decision every salesperson is trying to get somebody to make is in fact a decision that has emotion interwoven with it. Hmm. Interesting. So when it comes to things like uh, objective thinking per se, when you're trying to take a third party or a third, yeah, third person view or removing as much emotion as possible from it to simply look at facts rather than letting emotion getting involved in things. And I like to think of that as objective or logical thinking right? How much does logic, I mean, I understand what you just said with the emotion being part of everything, but how much does logic play into a, a sale or a decision-making process with someone? I mean, there's people that are buy off of emotion, just like right like that. And then there's a lot, a lot more like the accounting type people I like to call them that are very logical, very numbers oriented. How, how much does that play into actually getting someone to commit to and follow through on a deal? Or is it really emotional? Well, what is their logic to start with? So, yeah, everybody thinks they have a logical process, but at some point in time, you have to uh, evaluate, you know, give a value to the facts. You know, what matters here? What's important? Start putting valuations on things. Value is based on what we care about. So, you know, there's, there's our value issues are going to start with how we weigh things out emotionally. And then, mm-hmm. then the mind bender, then, then the, and this is what we refer to in the book as bending reality. Loss, every, if you're a human being, and so this only applies to human beings, lost things, tw- lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. That's from prospect theory. Mm-hmm. Danny Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics in 2002 because this is a fact of human life. What does that mean? $5, when I pay for it, I got to get $10 in return in value, at least, or I'm not going to make the deal. Hmm. If you're offering me something that gives me a 20% rate of return on my investment, that's inadequate. I need a 100% rate of return on my investment. So you're pitching gain to me based on neutral third-party valuations of what a dollar is worth and what the return on investment is. No matter how much you lay that out, I'm not going to weigh it that way because I'm always going to overestimate the value of the dollars that I've spent, Mm. and I'm always going to underestimate the value that I've received. And, and and the value you received in a dollar, I mean, in, in terms of like value doesn't necessarily have to be just dollars back, right? I mean, it's whatever we perceive as value back, correct? Right. Now, and then we got to, we got to start, I got to start getting into your head to find out what you perceive as value. Yeah. So it's not always with the dollars and cents. So for someone that has lost maybe control or not, not control. They've had a bad conversation. They got on the phone with someone. They're negotiating, I don't know, a, a deal where they're doing, let's say it's 3000 a month or $5,000 a month, right? It's a deal for a year. It's worth 60 grand in all. Um, 
and they've had a they've had a bad conversation and they can't get the person to call them back or they haven't been able to what's the next steps are you following up following up follow up follow up like you know grant cardone style or are you letting it go and moving on to the next one like what's what's your technique for all right the, that conversation didn't go well what's next all right so i value my time you know um if, if you're too hard for me to get to, I'm probably not going to continue the follow-up. However, my next follow-up is going to be a two-pronged approach. I'm going to send you a one-line message. It's going to go in an email or it's going to go in a text. And it's going to be one line and one line only. And I'm going to say, have you given up on doing business with me? Or have you given up on this the sale or whatever it is. Have you, and I have sent that message out. Have you given up on X? Now, 999 times out of a thousand, which is pretty good batting average. <laughs> I'm going to get a response back somewhere between three and 30 minutes from sending that out. And it has to go out like that word for word. Hmm. I had a woman once said to me, I sent that text out and it didn't work. And I'm like, all right, cool, interesting, possible. Tell me word for word what you sent out. And she said, yeah, well, I thought that sounded a little harsh, you know. And so instead of saying, have you given up on doing business with me? I sent out a lot, uh, message that said, should we give up on having lunch together so we can discuss the process? And I'm like, I wouldn't answer that either. <laughs> and you, and you got to understand where there, there is, uh, you got to be careful with, of the we crap. Your boss comes to you and said, Hey, look, we got a problem. Is that what the boss means? Yeah. <laughs> no, he's like, you got a problem. <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> And so we disguise, you know, we use we as a disguiser for you all the time. It's just, it's so bad. So the, the one line is, have you given up on doing business with me? Word for word. Now, you're going to get a response in anywhere from three to 30 minutes. I'm not kidding. But now, what do you do to follow up? They haven't been listened to. They're not talking to you because you've shown them that you don't listen to them. So when you get them back on the phone, what you have to do is summarize a perspective from their situation. Mm. Do not repeat your pitch. <laughs> do not repeat what caused them to go dark in the first place. It sounds summarize. so logical, but man, so many people do that. Everybody does it. <laughs> you know, su summarize it from their perspective and throw in, you know, you're probably having a hard time with this. You probably think I'm not paying attention to you. You got to especially summarize the stuff that you don't like. I mean, I would ask anybody listening to this also take a look at my TED talk because that's when I say, I must say it eight times. Summarize the stuff you don't like. Summarize the stuff from their perspective. Meaning what? What does that look like? All right. What that looks like is they're not getting back to you because they don't feel listened to. So you say you're probably not getting back to me because you don't feel listened to. You probably, you know, they're not getting back to you because the process is not moving them forward. You say, you know what? This process probably hasn't moved you forward at all. You're probably asking yourself why you're talking to me at all. Cause that is in fact, what's going on. You got to get the voice in their head to shut up. You don't get the voice in their head to shut up by contradicting it. You get the voice in their head to shut up by articulating what it's saying. Mm. Now suddenly you resonate with the voice in their head and you keep at this until they say to you, that's, Right. Ah, so if you get it wrong, it's not over. You just keep saying, okay, well, then maybe this. Well, the great thing is if you're actually trying to solve it or articulate it from their perspective, if you get it wrong, they're going to go, no, 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 that's not it. This is what it is. They'll ah. correct you. Mm. Now, that co being corrected is one of the ideal places on a planet to be because people love to correct, and when they correct, they tell you the truth. I I want you to repeat that one more time for the audience to hear, because I don't think very many people understand that. So one more time for the audience in the back. Being corrected is one of the ideal places on the planet to be. Mm. The other side loves it, which means now they're in an interaction with you that they love. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. which bodes well for future interactions. Mm-hmm. And when they correct, they tell you the truth. So to the people out there that are like, oh man, if I feel corrected, I feel like they think that I'm not credible or that, that I don't know what I'm talking about and therefore they're going to see me as less and not want to do business with me. What would you say to that? You're leaving money on the table. Mm. You are killing yourself. You are, you know, it's an emotional intelligence move, one of the smartest moves on a planet. And your fear is getting in your way. And your fear is stopping you from living in a bigger house. Mm. I love that. I love that. So you said it was a two-pronged approach. And maybe we covered the second one already. But the first one was that text or that email, one line. What was part two of that? Yeah, get a that's right out of them. Part one is to get a no out of them. Part two is to get a that's right out of them. You get a that's right out of them. Now, your next move is is exactly this. I'm going to do it perfectly. Dead freaking silence. Shut the front door. Shut up. <laughs> Let him fill the void. So because if they reply back, you just don't reply. When, when you get a that's right out of them, they will never be more inclined towards you than they are in that moment. Mm. The secret of negotiation is letting the other side have your way. At that point in time, let them give you the deal. Let them outline it for you. Now, in the extremely unlikely event that they don't, but you have to give them a chance to do so, count 1,000s in your sub, you know, one 1,000, two 1,000. If you get to 10, and only if you get to 10, then you say, how would you like to proceed? And, and that's if you're on, like, on the phone with them, not via email. Exactly. I mean, you, um, it's hard to get a that's right out of somebody via email. Emails are bad moves. Emails are playing chess, and you don't want to make seven chess moves in one email. Mm-hmm. So this is on the phone in person. So you get out. Okay. All right. Get a that's right out of them verbally. Shut the front door. If you count to 10, and you will not, you're, you will get to three, and they'll start talking again. But that's in the event, nice. you got to wait to 10. Very deferentially, you hit him with the magic H question. How would you like to proceed? How would you like to proceed? Now you know the roadmap and you know the best possible roadmap. If it doesn't work for you, you just made yourself smarter and you move on. And you move on. That's awesome. That's so so good. Many of us as communicators uh, need to know how to negotiate. So with that, I'd like to ask my first question of uh, Chris. How do you get the courage to negotiate, Chris? Well, a lot of it really has to do with um, understanding how to prepare and with a minimal level of preparation um, because each of us, we run through negotiations in our mind in advance and we have a tendency to often to defeat ourselves and we'll defeat ourselves usually in one of two ways. Um, We'll think about the worst case scenario and how if they said this, it would be nothing I could ever say and then so we've, and there's no point in negotiating because I already know what, what they're going to say. And we've defeated ourselves in that fashion. An- another way that people do is they think of a, m- so many possibilities that they think that they could never be prepared for them all. And then they've ended up defeating themselves again. So actually w- w- what I say is think of, think of the worst case scenario. Think of the best case scenario. Think of one great open-ended question Mm -hmm. to ask the other person Mm -hmm. in regards to either one. Mm -hmm. The reality is the situation is going to fall somewhere between the two extremes. If you've done a small amount of preparation for each one of the extremes, you'll feel prepared. You'll You'll have more courage because you'll feel prepared. And in fact, you will be prepared because it's going to range somewhere in between those two outcomes. And you'll be able to deal with the infinite possibilities in between because you've prepared for both extremes. Here at the bank, we've got 187 countries, and I think we have about 150 nationalities working here at the bank. So, question for you. Is culture a big deal in negotiation? Um, It can be the starting point of a negotiation. And and we look at culture instead of based on where you were born or your ethnicity or even the shade of your skin. 
we look at it more on a human level. We negotiate on, on, on ways that appeal to human beings. And then we sort of break the human culture up into three different approaches to conflict. And they are, there's two that are, seem, make a lot of sense, and then there's one that is just, we think is crazy. In the, back in the caveman days, we had the fight or flight response to threat or conflict. Caveman sees a saber-toothed tiger, he either wants to kill it and eat it, or he wants to run from it. And then there's a very interesting third type that wants to make it a pet. And these tend to be the types of people that we will run into around the world. And occasionally, there's enough of them in a given place that they almost become what you expect from the population. And it can be the starting point of a conversation. And many people look at culture as wanting to get the beginning and end point. Like, this is what you say to an American to get a deal. This is what you say to an Arab or Muslim or someone, a Japanese person. And people want that to be the beginning and the end in terms of cross-culture. So if you, can, if you look at them in human terms and accept that there are these three basic types, the kind of person, the type that wanted to kill the saber-toothed tiger is a very assertive, aggressive person. Tends to be what we think of Americans as. Very direct, very loud, very assertive, very aggressive. The type that wanted to avoid the saber-toothed tiger tends to be more analytical, quieter, much more thoughtful, occasionally dispassionate. There are types of societies and cultures that, that are very quiet, sometimes referred to as high context. The things have to be taken with a great deal of context to understand where they're coming from. And there are types of cultures that are very gregarious. If these three cultures are the starting point for our conversation, and then from that point forward we really focus on the other person, regardless of what culture you're from, if I start to take my cues from you, if I treat you with respect, then you'll let me make mistakes. If you know that I'm treating you respectfully and somehow I use the wrong hand to shake hands with, or I don't bow at the proper time, or I don't pick up the right utensil, if I've been respectful all along and listening to you very carefully to try to understand what you're saying, then you'll give me the space to make errors and we'll be able to work together. Implementation. In any business deal, yes is nothing without how. An agreement is nothing without implementation. And if your implementation isn't discussed to some degree in advance, then it's a guarantee of a tremendous amount of time lost going back and fixing the mistakes that you should have seen coming in the first place. Mm. Or if you haven't talked about implementation in advance, if Susan starts to break down, both sides go like, well, I'll wait for the other side to start fixing this. So anger and frustration is building. And then when somebody finally does say something, they're screaming at each other. Mm. Like I was in a, I did a negotiation to pull windows in my son's house a few years ago contractors, probably pretty much the same worldwide. You know, they, they take a deposit and they take your deposit to go finish the job that they started six months before. And they're not going to do your job till they got a deposit from somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I, I know this is a, what they do. So I negotiated to try to save this guy from himself. If I know that's probably how he's doing business, we're not going to do it like that. So he says, well, you know, how do we do this? Eh, you give me a deposit, you know, your windows are in six to, three to six weeks. Uh, I'll call you and we'll arrange for put them in. I said, well, how do I know they're going to be in three to six weeks? And, well, they always are. They always are. You know, and again, the, the issue isn't whether or not he answers. It's the process I'm putting him through. So finally I said, okay, dress an implementation. So, you keep saying the windows are going to be in by three weeks. If you don't call us three weeks from now to tell me the windows are in, then you give me permission right now to call you on the phone and call you names. 
Then what did he say? <laughs> well, he said, like, ah, well, just don't worry. So in two weeks and five days. Wow, he shaved off time. <laughs> he calls my son. Oh. And says, just want you to know the window's right here. The window's <laughs> right here. And we'll get it, you know, because I just addressed implementation in a way that he didn't want to have happen. So he dropped all his other nonsense that he was doing with everybody else. Mm. Because I addressed implementation up front. We got the windows in. And because I did it nicely, you know, I made him think it was his idea by asking how and what questions. Then when we had problems on down the line also, you know, he he handled everything really easily. We, you know, we had an issue with the door. We had some other stuff. and But I I didn't want any anxiety to build up on the unforeseen problems, which always drop in. That's amazing. And how did you know what it was that he didn't want? Because he clearly didn't want to be called names. Right. Well, I did it kind of playfully. And, you know, right. we went back and forth with him a little bit. Playful and, you know, a hostage negotiation, late night FM DJ voice. Business negotiations, playful voice, mm -hmm. which you do naturally. Right. You know, and I don't, I think you probably, your emotional intelligence, you probably just discovered that people wanted to deal with you the more that you smiled and the more that you're playful and pleasant. And a point of fact, that correlates really strongly with how many deals people make and how their long-term relationships play out. That's really interesting. I hadn't ever particularly thought about that before, so I'll take that. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it.